more that can be done, we're going to try to do. Um, it's a frightening statement, isn't it? I'm sorry. So <clears throat> uh, today we're going to talk about how his body grows, part one. <laughs> um, next week there will be a part two to this, Lord willing. We'll see how see how that works. <clears throat> um, in in verses four, one through six, Paul says, "I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism." One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, <clears throat> Paul begins this chapter, and as we've mentioned earlier, this is um, Paul's beginning of the practical applications of the of the um, basic theology of conversion and salvation that he shared in in the first three chapters. We won't go back into all that again, but he's he's now going to tell us how to live. And you'll, you'll notice that his opening verses here, where he emphasizes these spiritual qualities, are all to be used in relationships. And then he follows them by the what Bible people call the seven unities that are common to all believers. So those are things that every believer has in common, and they're... And those seven things, let me read them again. One body and one spirit. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Those seven things transcend everything in this earthly life. These things are eternal realities. So, brief review and introduction to what we're going to talk about today. He begins this passage, basically, the first thing he tells us about how to live this Christian life is he gives us qualities that we are to use in relationships. Um, I, I don't know, it was passed on to me, and I don't even remember who passed it on to me, but whoever passed it on to me got it from somebody else. So basically, life is about relationships, either vertically with God and or horizontally with one another. And it's a biblical principle, so much so that John says in his epistles that if you can't love your brother whom you can see, you cannot love the father whom you cannot see. So these relationships are important. This is how this stuff works. And that's what we're going to be talking about here for the next couple of Sundays, Lord willing. Now, um, as we look at this today, it's going to be kind of an introduction, um, I would encourage you to the best of your ability to let Scripture guide your thinking and your understanding of what church ought to be. Over the decades, um, and, and I've been doing this all, uh, over 40, over four decades, and it started long before I got, long before I got started. Over the years, 
we have accepted things into common practice that are not biblical. And we have so accepted them that no one questions them anymore. It's just the way you do things. And I'm, I'm reminded... Um, uh, I'm reminded of the story of the, the lady who had the recipe for meatloaf and, and it was a big amount and then they divided it up and the recipe said to divide it up and put it into smaller pans to bake it. And someone, eventually, someone said, why do you do that? Why don't you just put it in a bigger pan? So they went back. They started, fortunately, these people were still alive. You know, they went back and says, well, I don't know. That's the way mom always did it. Mom, why did you do it this way? Well, that's, I don't know. That's the way grandma taught me. Grandma, why did you do it this way? Grandma says, I didn't have a big pan. <laughs> and we would have never got there if someone not questioned it. And unfortunately, we don't question things enough. And the basis of our questioning ought to be in this book. Now, I, I'm going to be honest with you. It is entirely possible to ask a dumb question. There are lots of dumb questions. I've heard them. It's better to ask a dumb question than to not ask a dumb question. Even a dumb question has an answer. Okay? But not asking them allows us to get to the place where we use the little pans to make our meatloaf. So, as we go through this, you say, well, I've been to church all my life. We never did that. We never thought about that. We never did it that way. It's all right. We want to, we want to evaluate what we're talking about based on Scripture. Now, we're going to look at verses, verses 7 through 16, and I'm going to read them, so if you'll follow me. It says, But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things and he gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to measure the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And you may have some different words if you have a different translation. I'm going to draw your attention to the first part of this because in those first few verses, the word gift 
And, and giving um, uh, is used several times. In other words, these things that we're going to talk about today are things that come from the Lord by His grace. And to sum it all up, they are provided to each of us so that His body can grow. That's why we're talking about how His body grows. Now, there are some interesting verses in here that we will hopefully be able to cover in uh, next week or so. Verses 8 through 10, talking about His uh, descending and then His ascension and bringing gifts um, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Today, what I want to do is just give us an overall kind of understanding of, of what's going on here before we dig down into the, the uh, details of all of these wonderful things that he, that he talks about. <clears throat> and there are some interesting things that are here. And there are also some controversial things that are here. So we're going to look at another passage. And if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12... We're going to begin in verse 12, and we're going to read several verses that are somewhat parallel to this. Okay, don't go to 2 Corinthians. I just did, and that won't get you where you need to go. Go to 1 Corinthians. The words look much more familiar there. Now, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians especially... Um, to correct errors that were going on in that church. And here Paul is addressing an issue of division that's caused by spiritual snobbery. And that's, that's my terminology, not, not Paul's. I don't know if you'll find any theologian out here that will use that term, but that's how I'm calling it. Basically, there were people who were saying, my gift is better than yours. And 1 Corinthians 12 13 and 14 should all be read together. 13 bears on 12. Because Paul says at the end of 12, I'm going to show you an excellent way. And then in in chapter 13, he starts to tell us about love. And then chapter 14 begins with almost the same words that chapter 13 ends. Pursue love. We'll talk about all of this at some time, Lord willing, and, and pull all of those things together. But here he's, he's dealing with their spiritual snobbery. My gift is better than yours. And today we won't be able to address these gifts, though they are important and too often neglected or sidelined. They, pay, they play an important part in the process and a part of the process that we're talking about today. Unfortunately, there are ministries and seminaries and denominations that have a no-tolerance policy toward controversial thought. So let me draw you an illustration or, or make some sort of illustration. Because someone uses something wrong, they take the tool away. So people will misappropriate, misapply, misunderstand a scripture and teach it incorrectly. And so they will say that scripture doesn't even apply to us anymore. There's a theological term for this. It's called cessationists. Okay? It's just like the school 
who kicked the little fellow out of class because he chewed his bread into the shape of a handgun. And if you think I'm making that up, I'm not. If you Google it, you'll, you'll find that that actually happened. He chewed his bread into a pistol and shot the other little second grader with his bread pistol and he got expelled from school. No tolerance policy. What does that mean? That means we don't want to think, we don't want to contemplate, we don't want to deal with difficult passages. So we will maybe come back to this. I'm going to read uh, these verses, 12, on down through, I think, the end of the chapter here. And uh, most of us, this is going to be very familiar with many of us. For just as the body, verse 12, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, I want to interrupt this just for a thought, or just for a moment, and interject a thought here. That baptism he's talking about has nothing whatsoever to do with water. As a matter of fact, it's a little frustrating the way some Bible translations, some of your translations will say, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And that's a better translation. Mine reads, in one spirit. And that allows us, and I hope I'm not getting too deep into the theological weeds here, but there are entire denominations built on this. That allows us to include this into what we do in a church where we put somebody into water. Whether we immerse them or sprinkle them, at this point it doesn't matter. This is not water baptism. This is what puts you into the body of Christ. It's the spirit that quickens us and makes us alive and places us into the body of Christ. And that's universal, whether the person has been baptized or not. And we'll, again, another topic we'll have to come back and deal with in another time. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Now, I hope you note what he is saying there. He is saying that what you think about yourself is irrelevant. I mean, think about it again. Uh, we, we, we sometimes slip over that and we think, well, yes, of course, the ear is part of the body. Uh, it can't say, uh, just because it's not an eye doesn't mean it's not part of the eye. And, and we forget the fact that what he's saying is, is that would not make it any less a part of the body. He, what he's dealing with here, he's, he's dealing with the opinion in this instance. Let me see if I can quote this correctly. Uh, I am not a hand. The person that says I'm, or the member that says I'm not a hand, I do not belong. That 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 doesn't matter whether the hand thinks that or not. It's still a part of the body. So what the apostle here is dealing with is not necess- is not that the hand is is part or not part of the body. He's dealing with the person's opinion. He's dealing with the hand's opinion. He's dealing with the ears' opinion. I'll go on. If the whole body were an eye, 
where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If we were all a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. That reinforces what Paul said in the book of Ephesians. There is one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Now, I don't have time to talk about all of this, but uh, there's a reality in all of that if we, if, we, if we stop to think about it. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor, honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I think a lot of this goes without saying it. It's it's easily understood. Verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? So a whole series of short rhetorical questions but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and yet I will show you a more excellent way. Now, again, my goal here today is is not to um, go into detail on all these things, but but kind of set the stage so that we can go into them in detail uh, a little bit later, and and we're going to, uh, when we do that, we're going to revert back to Ephesians chapter 4 and go into that first. Um. So we have here Paul laying out, because there was divisions and because there was what I'm referring to as this spiritual snobbery, my gift is better than your gift, so on and so forth, Paul goes through this just excellent um, uh, little teaching where he uses the physical body as a picture of how Christ's body works. Paul does the same things in Ephesians, in the same thing in Ephesians 4. We'll, We'll look at that in detail here as we get to it. That, that his body is similar in such a way in that it has different members and each, different, each member has a different purpose and task and function. Some require more honor than others. Huh. So I, I can't get into all that, but it's, it, today, it, it, I just want us to think along those lines. Now, if you'll bear with me, I'm going to read to you from a book I forgot to bring out here. Would somebody get the book uh, Weight of Glory from off my desk? Thank you, Malachi. 
I'm going to read to you uh, from a book called The Weight of Glory. It's a series of messages from, from C.S. Lewis. And I'm going to read excerpts from his address that he gave in the 40s. I tried to look up the exact date, and I, I could not find it. Um, he's not. Okay, okay, good. For a minute there, I was thinking, I forgot it, left it at home. and oh, This is 80% of the message, so <laughs> thank you, Malachi. Um, but he gave in the 40s, and you'll mention, I think, I think he mentions in one of the passages that... Um, I'm reading that he talks about things that he said to the forces and because it, during World War II, he was called to address the, the, the British Armed Services. And, and he talked to them about spiritual things. And he actually talked to them about fighting and war and pacifism and things of that nature from Scripture. So I'm going to read to you some addresses from, uh, excuse me, some excerpts from his address called Membership. And again, it's part of this book, Weight of Glory. You, I also dis, I discovered that you can also go to uh, uh, YouTube, and there is a reading on YouTube of this address. So if you want to listen um, to the whole thing, um, you can go there and, and do that. So, please bear with me while I do this. I'm going to make some comments on some of these, um, but others I'm, I'm, I, I, I'll just make minimal, say minimal things for, for sake of time. I'm not reading the whole thing. It's several pages. It would take us too long today. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> I encourage you to get it and read it if you, if you want. So, here's how he begins. No Christian... And indeed, no historian could accept the epigram which defines religion as what a man does with his solitude. It was one of the Wesleys, I think, who said that the New Testament knows nothing of solitary religion. Now, Lewis is addressing a certain problem that's going on in the church, and it's a problem that we, uh, that we have today. And so he begins by saying, you can't be a solitary Christian. And we're going to build on this um, as we move through here. Um, again, I'm reading excerpts, and there's things before this, and there's things after this, so bear with me. I'm, I'm trying to focus in on succinct parts that will help us get where we need to go today. It must be most emphatically stated that the items or particulars included in a homogenous class are almost the reverse of what St. Paul meant by members. By members, in the Greek, he meant what we would call organs, things essentially different from and complementary to one another, things differing not only in structure and function, but also Indignity. So we heard that from, basically we heard that thing from the Apostle Paul, didn't we? Um, Let me read another section here, see if I can find this. How true membership in a body differs from inclusion in a collective may seem in the structure of a family. 
the grandfather, the parents, the grown-up son, the child, the dog, and the cat are true members in the organic sense precisely because they are not members of units in a homogenous class. They are not interchangeable. Each person is almost a species in himself. The mother is simply not a different person from the daughter. She is a different kind of person. The grown-up brother is simply, excuse me, the grown-up brother is not simply one unit in the class children. He is a separate estate of the realm. The father and grandfather are almost as different as the cat and the dog. Okay, he likes dogs. He brings up dogs two or three times. If you subtract any one member, you have not simply reduced the family in number, you have inflicted an injury on its structure. Its unity is a unity of unlikes, almost of incommensurables. In, I should have read that word carefully, more carefully, incommensurables. Okay, in other words, you can't compare them. Still with me? All right. Here's a big one. There is authority of husbands over wives and parents over children. Uh, and by the way, C.S. Lewis uh, would be in lots of trouble in many of today's mainline denominations because he was not an egalitarian. And he'll talk about that here a little bit. There is authority of husbands over wives and parents over children. There is in forms, too subtle for official embodiment, a continual interchange of complementary ministrations. Big words. Let me read it again. There is in forms too subtle for official embodiment. A continual interchange of complementary ministrations. We are all constantly teaching and learning, forgiving and being forgiven, representing Christ to man when we intercede and man to Christ when others intercede for us. The sacrifice of selfish privacy, which is daily demanded of us, is daily repaid a hundredfold as true growth of personality which the life of the body encourages. Those who are members of one another become as diverse as the hand and the ear. That is why the worldlings are so monotonously alike compared with the almost fantastic variety of the saints. Obedience is the road to freedom. Humility, the road to pleasure. Unity, the road to personality. Now, he makes two or three points in here, and I'm going to touch on them very quickly. I want you to also notice he uses the same pictures that the Apostle Paul, that the Apostle Paul did, uh, f- f- using them from Scripture. The first thing he, wants, he, he says to us is that in these systems, there is a constant interchange continuous interchange. And he goes on to define it a little bit, talking about forgiveness and being forgiven and so on and so forth. Iron sharpening iron. Folks, discipleship is not a class. 
Churches have a discipleship class so they can, you can come in and you can learn what it is to be a part of that church or part of that denomination and so on and so forth. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is living your life in obedience to Christ with those around you and showing Jesus to them in your strength, in your weakness, in your frailty, in your failures. When you, when you, when you offend someone and you go to apologize and you ask them forgiveness, you're being a disciple. You're showing them what Jesus would have you do. When you win and you're triumphant and you encourage the loser and you don't gloat, you're showing them what Jesus would do. And we, we could go on and on and on with that sort of thing. That's why he says you can't embody this and the list is too big. It goes, it's, it's, it's impossible to, to categorize all of these things. And, and uh, I don't want to hit the culminating point here too early, but that's what each and every one of us is called to do, and that's what we are doing whether you realize it or not. All right, that was the first one. The second one is he calls privacy selfish. I didn't take time to read it, but in this... He talks about the function of civil government and he says the, the, the portion of, of uh, the, the goal of civil, civil government is to allow each man to sit in front of his fire and read his book or drink his beer or smoke his cigar or do whatever he wants in complete privacy and alone. Let him alone. He talks about that. He quotes, he quotes uh, the great British writer Samuel Johnson and says that's what the, that's what the goal of, of government is to do. That's what civil is to do. So our civil government is out here so that we can lead, what does, what does the apostle say? So we can lead quiet and peaceable lives with all godliness. Okay? Doesn't intrude upon our life. That's not what the spiritual body does. That's not what we're to do with one another. Are you to intrude in someone else's life if you see them walking towards a cliff? What if the cliff is indivisible? And, uh, indivisible. That's not the right word. Invisible and spiritual. Are you to go disturb their privacy? Is it a disturbance to your privacy to have to live as a member of a body with others? And he basically says that that sacrifice of selfish privacy, I'll read it, which is daily demanded of us, is also daily repaid a hundredfold. And then he goes on to say, obedience is the road to freedom. He'll come back to that um, more strongly later on. All right, hang with me. I'm more than halfway through. You all still there? Okay, how many of you have dug this up on your phone and you're reading it? Okay, someone tried. I I thought about giving page numbers, but it probably wouldn't do any good, would it? What what did he say? Did he say something? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's too long. I'll do that. Um, All right. Hang on here. Grab hold of your seat. You ready? If it means that all are of equal value as immortal souls, then I think it conceals a dangerous error. The infinite value of each human soul is not a Christian doctrine. 
God did not die for man because of some value he perceived in him. The value of each human soul, considered simply in itself, out of relationship to God, is zero. <laughs> okay, if, someone's, if someone needs revived, you know, fan them with your hand. As St. Paul writes, to have died for valuable men would have not been divine but merely heroic. This is Romans 5, 6 through 8. But God died for sinners. He loved us not because we were lovable, but because He is love. It may be that He loves all equally. He certainly loved all to death. I am not certain what the expression means. If there is equality, it is in His love, not in us. Equality is a quantitative term and therefore often, and therefore love often knows nothing of it. Hmm. Now, Lewis is going someplace with this. And, and I've read this several times, so it may be simpler for me to understand than it, me just standing up here and dumping this on you and, and you having to grasp it all at once. But where he's going with this is, folks, is that our, our place, our joy, our value, our strength, our worth is found in the loss of self. All right. There will come a time when every culture, every institution, every nation, the human race, all biological life is extinct and every one of us is still alive. Immortality is promised to us, not to these generalities. It was not for societies or states that Christ died, but for men. In that sense, Christianity must seem to secular collectivists to involve an almost frantic assertion of individuality. But then it is not the individual as such who will share Christ's victory over death. We, will, we shall share the victory by being in the victor. A rejection or in Scripture's strong language, a crucifixion of the natural self is the passport to everlasting life. All right? You don't get to share the victory by being you. You get to share the victory by being in Christ. Nothing that has not died will be resurrected. That is how Christianity cuts across the antithesis between individualism and collectivism. There lies the maddening ambiguity of our faith. It must appear to out, of our faith as it must appear to outsiders. It sets its face relentlessly against our natural individualism on one hand. It gives back to those who abandon individualism on eternal possession for their, of their own personal... I, I, let me start that over. It gives back to those who abandon individualism an eternal possession of their own personal being, even of their bodies. Found this? He who saves his life will what? Lose it. And he who loses it for my sake will what? Find it. 
As mere biological entities, each with its separate will to live and to expand, we are apparently of no account. We are cross fodder. But as organs in the body of Christ, as stones and pillars in the temple, we are assured of our eternal self-identity and shall live to remember the galaxies as an old tale. I do hope that makes sense. He goes on, So we shall then first be true persons when we have suffered ourselves to be fitted into our places. And then um, one more. The reason we recoil, recoil from this is that we have in our day started by getting the whole picture upside down. Starting with the doctrine that every individuality is of infinite value, we then picture God as a kind of employment committee whose business is to find suitable careers for our souls, square holes for square pegs. In fact, however, the individual, the value of the individual does not lie in him. That means in the individual. He is capable of receiving value. He receives it by union with Christ. There is no question of finding for him a place in the living temple which will do justice to his inherent value and give scope to his natural idiosyncrasy. The place was there first. The man was created for it. He will not be himself till he is there. Let me read that last part again. There is no place, there is no question of finding for him a place in the living temple which will do justice to his inherent value and give scope to his natural idiosyncrasy. That means God knows who you are, he knows what you like, he knows what you don't like, he knows what your personality is, and he has a place for you. And I'll finish this. The place was there first. The man was created for it. And he will not be himself till he was there. We talk about the body of Christ and sometimes we get glib with it and sometimes we don't really stop to think uh, about all of its ramifications. Let me conclude by giving you three or four things here real quick. The emphasis in culture and church on the value um, of the isolated individual is unscriptural and in the end destructive to its own goal. And again, we've got scripture that says that. If you seek to keep your own life, you'll lose it. Beware, lest you begin to think of yourself in that way. Don't apply this stuff, what the world says, and to some degrees what the, what the church culture says to yourself. It's not about you. I don't care how many Christian songs say you are worthy. It is not about you. The amazing part of God's grace is that he would send his son. That's what's amazing about it. It's so that he would receive glory. 
Number two, we were made as believers to function as part of a larger organism. The Holy Spirit directs this. We read that in Ephesians chapter 4 and we'll continue there next week. It's a gift of His grace. The Apostle Paul said said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12. It's a gift of His grace. He puts these parts in the body. He does it. The Holy Spirit directs it. We do not get to choose. He does better than us. Number two, if we ignore the above, it's at our own peril. It will bring grief to your loved ones and weaken the Lord's body as well as bring nasty grief to your own life. It would be continually grieving the Holy Spirit to continue to to constantly, is a better word, to constantly pull away from your godly involvement in the body of Christ. Now, let me talk to you for a minute about what what the body means. These realities are too large, too numerous, and too important to be confined to a meeting. We're we're just not talking about the people you know here. We're not talking about what happens when 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 you gather here. It's, it has to do, just like in Lewis's illustration of the, the daily life of that family going back and forth and the things that happen, it's, it's, it's in the daily life of your service to others. It, it, when you pray to Him and, and, uh, and, and honor Him, you give service to Him and you give service to others. It doesn't, it's not, please hear this, it's not focused in a meeting, it's not focused in some church organizational thing. It can be, you can gather together at that particular, and you can do it here today, you can serve one another, you can minister one another, you can pray with one another, you can, you can actually interact with one another in some meaningful way, instead of just saying, hi, how are you doing? And you say, I'm fine, how are you doing? And then go on your way, you can actually look them in the eye and say, what's really going on in you with your life? Is there something I can pray with you about? You can do that here. You can also do it throughout the week. You can con- and we have so many means of communication today. You know, we can text, we can, we, we can send email, we can communicate instantly. Imagine the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, wrote, wrote that letter, epistle, we call the book, wrote it to the Ephesians, rolled it up, gave it to somebody, and that somebody got on a boat and took it to the Ephesians. Look how long that took. Instant communication. And there is no physical organization like a church can manage or or contain the greatness of his body. His body is all over the world. You know, we have people, I, I didn't say anything about it, there's too little time on Sundays to say some of these things. We, I, I don't know if you realize it, but I believe it was Nigeria where a church was attacked and there were almost a score of people shot dead in the church meeting. Those were believers who were gathered together in church like you are today and, and, and the terrorists and the revolutionaries came in and shot them. They're part of our body. You can't contain that in a, in a, in a building. And unfortunately, there's, you know, you probably didn't even hear it on the news. You have, to be, you have to be subscribed to certain newsletters and things to even find out what's going on in the church and the rest of the world because it just, it, it, was, it was too few in numbers.
Next week, we will continue this. I hope this wasn't too heavy. I hope it created some questions. Please go through and read Ephesians chapter 4. Read down through the, uh, toward the end of the, of the chapter there. Um, we're going to read, we're going to go through verse 16, at least that, at least that far, hopefully next week, and talk about some of those things. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, I ask you to minister your grace and your goodness to us as we move on with our gathering here today and we sing and we rejoice and and do other things. We're doing it together and we're here so we can do it together. When we leave, we can still rejoice in you and if so, we'll be doing it along with others as part of your body. I pray there's no one in here who thinks they have no purpose, no place, no worth. Our worth comes from you. I, I, I pray that every believer who's hearing me, whether here or through this recorded message, will understand the calling to the body, to care for one another, to love for one another to ministry to one another. That we are not to be isolated and alone. And Lord, if that's, that is so prevalent, if if it's attached itself to us, clear clear it from us. Forgive us and help us walk in newness in awareness of your great calling. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.